Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleho. On this episode, we speak with Catherine Spires, host and editor of the Smart Mouth Food History Podcast and newsletter. She is essentially a Jill of all trades when it comes to food media, honestly. Now we have to be business people, too. We very Ugh, much, exactly, we don't know anything about that. And we were trained <laughs> to not know anything about that. I think that's something that maybe people outside media don't know is that traditionally journalists very actively are discouraged from having anything to do with the business side of the operation. So now we're learning it on the fly. As a consequence, this is a really wide-ranging interview because Catherine knows so much about so many things. We hit on Subway tuna. If it's true that there is no seafood in a Subway tuna sandwich, I do have to admit that I'm surprised by that. Just a total lack of any product (laughs) from the ocean, that does surprise me, yes the history of eating as a civic duty in victory gardens and share some pessimistic and optimistic views of what the pandemic will leave us with. There's a lot to cover, so let's jump straight in. We're going to describe your podcast, but I would love just to have your take on it too. Can you tell us a little bit about Smart Mouth? Yeah, so Smart Mouth is a food history podcast and how I structure it usually is that every episode has a guest and ahead of time the guest will have told me some of their favorite foods and I research them and essentially find out which food that they've chosen has the most interesting history, the one that'll take an hour to describe as opposed to five minutes. So I, what I like to do is interview people in a way that they haven't been interviewed before. Like I'll get a lot of anecdotes from like famous people who are on their promotional tour, but I get different quotes out of them. So that's always fun. (laughs) But for me, I like, I'm, I like, I'm a busybody and I like knowing things. So I like knowing their personal stories and I like knowing food history. So that's how I structured the podcast. So what is so interesting about food history for you? Like what really gets you about it? I think something that continually surprises me about food history is big picture. Food history is just history, just straight up the history of the world. You can trace the movement of humans through food history. Ethnobotany is a science I've ever gotten, and I'm finding it fascinating. You learn about military history. You learn about the history of how women have been perceived over the years. You learn things like the concept of women's work and how that's changed and how women not working to make money is something that's purely post-World War II in the United States. You find out everything through food history. It's a great starting point. I would love to hear more about like just sort of a a recent example of something that really blossomed out from your discussion of of food. I'm thinking especially of your recent interview with Max Falkowitz about tuna and uh, lunch counters. It seems like there's just so at first you wouldn't think there was so much to talk about, but there was. And I think that's the really cool part about your podcast. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about lunch counters and I also wanted to talk about tuna melts with Max Falkowitz because that's um, an experience that we had had together in New York. And I realized in sort of combining the two that we could talk about largely the civil rights movement of America in the 1960s, but you could also touch on like civil rights during World War II and Japanese American fishermen and overfishing issues (laughs) and talking about um, the stories that food media and all media make up when they want to create a myth of something. The timing was really right, too. I noticed that you had a uh, a mention of the Subway tuna debacle, which I found, <laughs> you know, personally very, uh, 
satisfying as someone who also had to write about it. Yeah, I don't. It's so funny that that happened. We talked about tuna and then people sued Subway about tuna. And then another woman wrote an article (laughs) about how canned fishes are going to be all the rage. I was like, gosh, we are just on it. (laughs) So hip. (laughs) (laughs) History is just always happening. It's so weird like that. Yes, isn't it? It's just happening all around us. It's so overwhelming. Um, It is true that there's too much history happening right now. Was the Subway Tuna lawsuit, the discussion around it, the least surprising thing to happen out of the fast food world right now? Or was it surprising? What was your take on it, Catherine? If it's true that there is no seafood in a Subway Tuna sandwich, I do have to admit that I'm surprised by that. Just a total lack of any product from the ocean. <laughs> that does surprise me. Yes. <laughs> And so while we're also talking about the podcast, I also want to hear about the newsletter and how that got started. Is there any crossover between the effort, you know, from like your journalism past and putting together a newsletter? Like how how did that journey begin and and what do you find rewarding about it? Well, so when I started my podcast, it was just, okay. I'm going to do this podcast as like a side gig. But then I got laid off from LA Weekly as the food editor there. And I was like, well, might as well try and make a real go of that. So I've tried to create like a multimedia empire out of it. (laughs) (laughs) And though I was already podcasting, I think in terms of my journalism, I'm definitely more of a print person. And I also think that I might be a better editor than writer. So I thought, how about I start this newsletter that's not me necessarily writing all the time. And luckily enough, um, I had some financial backing so I can actually pay the writers. I would have been too humiliated to ask people to write for free. So I'm paying for short articles from around the world. Um, And the topics on the podcast and the topics in the newsletter don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. I don't try and time them. Like There definitely have been overlaps, but not necessarily coming out the same week. Um, And I really like getting all these voices from all over the world and different points of view. And again, learning what Americans know and don't know. Like a woman in India wrote an article for me about butter chicken. And she opened this article assuming that every reader knew what the partition was. And I had to send it back to her and say, I'm so sorry, people in the United States don't really know about the partition. (laughs) Could you write this for a different kind of audience? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, they know about Beyonce first. before. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think the explosion in newsletters is so interesting, too. I feel like you're you're in on that sort of first wave. Does it feel like a good or at least a fruitful path for food media to go down? I think only time will tell. The big challenge, of course, is, you know, all these journalists starting newsletters. Now we have to be business people, too. We very Ugh, much. Exactly. We don't know anything about that. And we were trained <laughs> to not know anything about that. I think that's something that maybe people outside media don't know is that traditionally journalists very actively are discouraged from having anything to do with the business side of the operation. So now we're learning it on the fly. I think it's great the few people out there who are earning a full-time living with their newsletter. I can't imagine it's that common, though. I don't think there's very many people who are like, this is my one thing. I think everyone still has 15 side hustles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I just started a newsletter too. Um, a separate one on Substack about anime, and I don't want anyone to read it. It's fine. <laughs> I feel very privileged to to feel that, but I just to the the thought of promoting it just 
terrifies me. I don't want anyone to know. Well, <laughs> then why did you do newsletter as opposed to, I don't know. I mean, WordPress still exists. You, <laughs> is it just what we it's do true. now? Just like, I guess it's just what we do. Yeah. Also, Tejal Rao made me do it. So now it's sort of stuck in the format. <laughs> Well, there you go. It's someone else's fault. <laughs> so we wanted to also ask you, since it's hard to, I mean, we even started this conversation before we started recording, just talking broadly about the pandemic, but it's hard to avoid talking about it. And I'm curious from a historian perspective and just like a broader perspective, like what your definition of pandemic eating is. Like we talk about it a lot in food media, just the way our patterns have shifted in response to these bigger factors. So how would you characterize that? What's your take on it? I think the pandemic eating is all about comfort food, which doesn't really narrow it down a lot because comfort food means different things to everybody. I'm hoping that there's less shame around food choices coming out of this pandemic because everyone, mm. we all know that everyone's just trying to do their best and just trying to get by. So if you're not cooking for yourself, that's okay. And if you are learning to cook, I, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of making fun of people who were posting their efforts at making bread is the stereotypical example for the first time. And it's like a lot of this, that's so basic. Why don't you know it? It's like, hey, come on. Like we all know different things. It's going to be okay. Um, so I, I I mean, I think there is more home co cooking without people trying to be fancy about it. Less of the, oh, if I don't do it the way that this Instagram influencer did it and photographed it professionally, then it's it's not worth doing and I've humiliated myself. It's okay. Everyone's just cooking at home and doing their best. It sounds like the culinary equivalent of sweatpants. Oh my gosh. Exactly. What you're describing. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that maybe like trying to do fancy foods is considered like a weekend project now. I, I do think overall there's like a more of a focus on home cooking. Of course, that's oftentimes because people cannot go to restaurants. You know how when people take photos of meals they've eaten at restaurants. And the snark about that is like, oh, so, so why would we want to see food that you ate? But I think when people are posting photos of food that they made, it's more like posting a picture from a hike you went on. It's considered like mm. part of who you are and part of what you're getting up to and your friends would want to know about it. I mean, that's a really good idea. Like the, the idea that there's more of an openness around what people are eating. And one of the elements, too, I think of it is accessibility. Like, you know, you can't, it is kind of a privilege to be able to cook not for sustenance and be able to share what you're making and, you know, the outdoor dining setup that you're going to. But there's also, you know, like during the pandemic, another element of people only being able to get what they can get and, you know, cook what they can cook and just trying to make ends meet. Like, Looking back, you know, in a in a historical perspective, do you think that's going to be an element of it too? This kind of like, I don't know if it's so much like a communal experience, but a less judgmental view of like what people cook at home, if that's even possible for culture <laughs> today. I don't know. Like, is it how do how do you see that? Yeah, I do think I I hope and I do think that people are becoming less judgmental about the food that real people eat. And I think part of that is, too, is that even people who don't care about where food comes from, they're learning about it because they go to the grocery store and half of what you want to get isn't available anymore. Less so now. But I, it's strange. I've been finding that things that used to be available 
aren't available right now. Like it keeps changing. You never know what's going to actually right. be at the grocery right. store. So I think when people are faced with that and then they think, oh, maybe I'll read an article about it. And it's all about how supply chains work and all these people who previously did not care know about it now. And I think that that can only increase empathy. Right. You know, I wonder if part of this too, and I've been trying to like connect this to a lot of things, but I mean, the overall idea is like an increase in knowledge or empathy due to the pandemic because people are, I mean, the assumption, like people who are doing it right are staying at home more, not, you know, and they have more time on their hands at home and they might, you know, read a newsletter like yours, Catherine, or like get into a podcast like yours that they might not have been into before and become more informed. Like maybe that's an element that's a positive, you know, people having more time on their hands and becoming and I guess acting on the curiosity that they might not have had before. I don't know. Oh, I think that that's a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought of it that clearly before. But yeah, there are a lot of people who are probably exploring things that they haven't had the time or inclination to explore before. Yeah. I think it's interesting to also examine what we mean by people in this conversation, right? Because there are so many people who are finding themselves, and we, we note this earlier in the conversation, but who are finding themselves even more kind of entrenched in food insecurity right now, who who sort of have time, <laughs> they have time to stand in the food bank line for hours um, as they're getting groceries. And I guess, do you think that empathy will extend to people like that as well? Like, I don't know. I mean, are there examples in history where empathy has lasted? Where empathy has lasted in the United States? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> there, there have been brief times. I do think it's true. It's not universally true, but during World War II, people did sort of have this sense of wanting to come together and wanting to, you know, grow their victory gardens and share the bounty with their neighbors and that sort of thing. So that lasted, for, I don't know, during the war and then it kind of went away. But maybe there's maybe there's policy change that can come out of it. I mean, I think also for non-food reasons, people are a lot more engaged. Again, you say, like, what do we mean when we say people? Some people are a lot more engaged and have more of a sense. I think visuals help. You know, when people see photos of cars lined up for miles at food banks, they think, oh, well, hey, maybe it's not just because of personal choices that people are food insecure. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Weird, right? Yeah, so Yeah, odd. we needed just like this giant thing to really settle on everyone in order to understand that there might be mitigating factors yeah. in people living in poverty. Yeah. Fascinating. Weird. <laughs> I was about to say, you mentioned like victory gardens. I, I, Catherine, I'm curious, like, is there a uh, form of that that exists now, like a pandemic version of a victory garden from like World War One and World War Two? I don't know if there's like a connection there, but with people growing things at home or like a version of that, is there any kind of like through line through history between then and now that you kind of see? I think that maybe the contemporary equivalent is community fridges. Mm. Um, it's less, you know, the Victory Gardens were all about like support our boys. <laughs> Let's get through <laughs> this, which is it's different, but it's still a sense of doing for others and eating in a certain way for others. You know, um, Meatless Mondays and Wheatless Wednesdays come, that concept comes from World War One, actually. So there's all these things that have been percolating 
like at the underneath society and maybe they just like it takes something horrible like a pandemic for people to remember that they can care about people that they don't know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know, I would also posit that perhaps the call to save restaurants, you know, in quotes, is also parallel to that because it feels like a civic duty Mm. the way that a lot of people talk about it the discourse around going out to restaurants like no i'm supporting restaurants um similar to supporting our boys out in uh you know europe um it it has that feeling of like we have to do this for the betterment of society and yet it's a lot more mired in like the sort of commercial (laughs) uh, consumerist mode of engaging with society um (laughs) i don't know am i am i being ridiculous here. No, I think that I totally understand it. And I think in the same way, it's um, what the United States loves to do is to assign personal responsibility to something that's actually a systemic failure. So (laughs) yeah, it's great to support restaurants if you're in a position to do so, but not very many people are. And that's not any one individual's fault. (laughs) You are listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Solejo, and we're back with Catherine Spires. Okay, when this is all over, which feels like such an awful hypothetical thing to bring up, because I hear it all the time and I want to believe, but (laughs) when this is all (laughs) over, do you think our generation will be a lot like the depression grandparents who save tissues for weeks and, you know, have been marked um, bodily and also psychologically by this? Uh, Will this change the way we eat for at least the duration of our lifetimes? Yeah, I think that it will. I think that you're exactly right. While we may not be as intense as the Depression era people were, I think this is the first time in a long time that Americans at large have been like, oh, no, uh, this could all go away. Everything could change. Um, There are problems in the world that affect us, too. So, yeah, that can't not stick with you. I totally believe the theory that like we're all going to have PTSD after this in some form (laughs) or another. This is just exhausting. I remember having a discussion with someone at a, I was in East Oakland uh, and I was trying to get onions, right? Because I remember like everybody was like stocking up on onions and I was like, damn, I need to grab some. And they had a bin that only had a couple left. And one of the people was like, no, 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 you take it, you take it. I was like, no, 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 you take it. And I'm like, man, I'm never going to forget about this. Like 20 years from now, I could, you know, be telling some younger person, be like, ah, you don't understand there's a time in 2020, 2021 where you couldn't get onions or toilet paper or bread or yeah. eggs. And people you know? were brawling in grocery stores over paper yes. towels. That's weird right. at any point in history. <laughs> so, like, I know that we are going to remember these moments. Like, our generation is going to definitely think about, like, uh, the trials and tribulations tied to to food access, food insecurity, our own personal ordeals. But I'm curious about, like, what the next how this might affect like the next younger generation who is like looking at their parents or their older siblings go through this. Like, are they assuming each group after us is more progressive? Like, I wonder how this is going to affect them, like how they might see food or the access to food or, you know, I I don't know. Like, do you think it would have any impact? Yeah. It's generally a fallacy to believe that, every subsequent generation gets more progressive. But 
I think it might actually be true with the younger people, people who are in their 20s and younger right now. They've mm-hmm. seen some wild stuff at a very young age. And and we were already talking about how much more sensitive they were than anybody else before the pandemic. So they probably didn't stop being sensitive. Um, mm-hmm. They, I don't know how they're going to express it. I don't know if it's true that they're all going to have weird social skills from not going to school um, or what. But yeah, I think they're going to be a lot more thoughtful. I was watching an old Saturday Night Live video that used meat real meat as a prop and i got a little like itchy watching it Mm. (laughs) i was like this is so wasteful this is just like they're they got it's not just any food it's meat they killed animals just to put them on tv and then they're going to throw them away and it like i couldn't deal with it and i got to figure younger people are going to probably have even more of those types of feelings Mm. Oh, was that the Julia Child segment? No. Because I, I think about that one a lot. <laughs> really? With the wasting meat? Yeah, with the, like the chicken. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't It wasn't that, uh, but same idea. So I want to pivot to thinking more broadly about the American food system, since we, we have been talking about grocery stores as like our visceral kind of first look at the impact. But I also think that the pandemic has taught us so much more about like what globalization could spell for us as a population, as a world, truly like the breakdown in international trade in some ways and like sanctions and all of that stuff have really had made us confront the shortages and just how interconnected we all are. And yeah, like the sort of return to thinking about CSAs and like local food as a better source for getting our food might have lasting impacts too. But I'm curious about just what what other lessons we should take from from this experience about the uh, American food system. Well, I think to your point, there are a lot more people now who can talk very confidently and casually about the supply chain than there was a year <laughs> ago. Um, and I think whereas before maybe CSAs and farmers markets were just generally thought of as this sort of nebulous good. I think we are more aware of the real concrete reasons why eating locally is good now. Uh, If you are eating locally anyway, you will continue to have your food supply. Whereas a lot of people who went to the grocery store found everything gone, but the only only snafu with CSA boxes was all of a sudden all everybody subscribing to them and they didn't... They couldn't do the paperwork fast enough. Um, But yeah, I think the supply chain issue is so interesting. And I think it's so interesting that now people pay attention to things like supply chains. And of course, we all uh, we all learned that meatpacking warehouses are were huge centers of covid outbreaks and thinking a lot about what that means and why that happens. (laughs) Um, Just generally, I, I think that people are more informed about food. And the bad thing about being informed about food is that you learn how awful the food industry is from start to finish. Mm. So it can take away your ability to enjoy some things. And that's a bummer. But I come down on the side of like, I think being more educated about things is, is a net good as a content creator, too, do you find that your listeners and readers are more receptive to that stuff? Yeah, I think that I get thanked a lot more for what would maybe once be considered veering off topic. 
<laughs> because I'm talking about food history, but sometimes I'll talk about something that's not specifically food related and it maybe feels like a tangent, but it all comes back together in the end. I do still get angry people in the iTunes reviews who don't care for it, you know, when I am not talking about food, but I think they don't get it. They don't get that food <laughs> history is about everything. Catherine, you mentioned something that was really interesting, like people being able to casually discuss supply chains. And I kind of, you know, I just want to hit this like pandemic angle one more time. Do you think like that knowledge that people had was due to the immediacy with which what was on their table changed? Yeah, I think um, I remember back to that aforementioned trip to Vons where I was completely unprepared for the panic. Um I, because this is my area of interest, I really, really studied every aisle. I was like, okay, what's going on with every single food product? And I went over to the meats, meat section and it was like everything except for lamb neck was gone or something like mm. that. Like absolutely no chicken. Who, who in the United States has like seen that before uh, where once there was an enormous meat section, there now is nothing. Uh, mm. And there's no way that the average person going to the grocery store just went, oh, um, there's absolutely no meat here, whatever. I'm not going to think about that again. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course, people noticed and there had to have been some sort of curiosity about what went wrong. Yeah, no, I mean, speaking of meat, too, it seems like this might be a wake up call, too, considering like, you know, the point you brought up about the slaughterhouses and the meat packing plants. Knowing more about meat often, at least in my experience, makes you want to eat it less. Mm. Yes, that is so true. I think in particular, knowing about meat makes you want to eat it less, but it kind of goes for everything. Like if you learn about tomatoes or strawberries or chocolate, that's my big one right now. If you know about chocolate, you're going to get real careful about where you buy it from. It's just, it's it's exhausting uh, to be thoughtful all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Here's like the big question that I that I think about a lot. And it's, you know, in the future, imagine there are going to be future food anthropologists. Um, hopefully that is an industry that never ends. But, you know, what what do you think they'll say about us right now? OK, well, my hope is that they will say, hey, people in the United States learned a lot even through this extremely challenging time, and they retained all that new knowledge and they applied it going forward. That's my hope. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Don't you oh think there's God. also another possibility where we come out of this and everyone's like, I don't care about anything? Oh my God. A new nihilism? Yes. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. That's okay. So. Well, we can't we can't leave anything nice. So let's talk about like what's the uh, what's the bleak outcome. So we just talked about the hopefulness. <laughs> what is what is that the bleak outcome where everyone's just like I don't care. There are no rules now, like that kind of thing. Yeah, we're talking about a period of time where every single person at least knows somebody who died of yeah. a particular disease. I absolutely think that there's a scenario where it's like you only live once and you might die. This evening. So do whatever you want. Behave however you want. I do think it's true that people are going to get very sexually weird after this, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I couldn't fault people for deciding 
that nothing matters and life is too short and um, everything's out of control anyway and there's nothing you can do. The more I talk about it, the more I'm convincing myself not to care about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, the positive side is I think what we have determined is that there are a lot of people who are becoming more knowledgeable about, you know, food ways, where their food comes from, food waste as well. Um, And there's a hope that that lasts. And then the downside is that it doesn't. For Catherine, for you as a food historian, like, is there anything that you can draw context from like in the past that can kind of help you understand the now? Like this moment in history kind of gives us a way to navigate out of this. Like, is there anything that you can kind of connect to that No, unfortunately, I'm only thinking of the opposite. I'm thinking about things like um, in England, uh, when people started getting really panicky about gin consumption. Mm. And instead of thinking about like, well, people start drinking gin because the water isn't clean enough to drink and they continue drinking gin because life is so horrible for poor people. Uh, they just said, ooh, all these yucky people are drinking gin all the time and it's embarrassing and disgusting. And I'm thinking about things like the Irish potato famine where people didn't... Well, actually, maybe there were some voices at the time who were like, look at what England did to Ireland and what the result of it is. But those voices um, were drowned out, obviously. So hopefully going forward with our issues, the more empathetic voices will be louder and... You see that sometimes and maybe Twitter, maybe the cream will rise to the top. That probably not. But there are people who are aware of the systemic issues. I hope that food anthropologists in the future will say, look at how this pandemic and the growing knowledge about supply chains changed policy in the United States. And it Mm. changed the way that, for instance, food stamps are issued. Because I do think that there is an opportunity here for people to like take a deep breath and look around them and think about how can we prevent some of these things from happening again. I think that's a wonderful note to leave off on. So um, good. Thanks. At least a cushion between the nihilism right. and the come down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so before you go, would you mind telling our listeners where they can find you and your work? Yes, uh, my podcast is called Smart Mouth, and that's two words, and that can be found anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And then the newsletter is at smartmouth.substack.com. Thank you so much for being with us. So great. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Catherine Spires for being in conversation with us, and to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.